Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Normally what we do on Tuesday nights is we take a book of the Bible and we talk through it uh, for a number of weeks. We just read it and talk through it. We're not doing that for the first five possibly, but hopefully not six weeks of this quarter. And what we're going to do is once about every three to four years, we will talk topically about relationships. And so that's what we're going to do. And I mean all kinds of relationships, friendship, romantic relationship, dating, parents, marriage, employment, all that kind of stuff, and gather from kind of the wealth of knowledge and scripture from all over places, um, wisdom about those things. And I wanted to read this... I've read this before when I've talked about relationships. I want to read this quote from a Harvard Business School professor, Clayton Christensen. Uh, His studies have probably affected everybody in this room. Um, He actually came up with a theory, what he mostly wrote about in his career, or has written about, is disruptive innovation. He's the guy who put those two words together and came up with the idea of disruptive innovation or articulated it. Um, So he's a big deal. This is what he wrote about um, his year as a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, And he published this in Harvard's Business Journal, whatever the name of that is. He said this, I spent an hour a night during my time as a Rhodes Scholar thinking and praying about my purpose, seeking to understand it. I was conflicted whether I could take time away from my studies, but I stuck with it. If I'd spent an hour each day learning the latest techniques for mastering the problems of autocorrelation and regression analysis, I would have badly misspent my life. I apply the tools of econometrics a few times a year. I apply my knowledge of my purpose of my life every day and every minute of every day. It's the single most useful thing I have ever learned. And I have a pretty clear idea of how my ideas have generated enormous revenue for companies that have used my research. I know I've had a substantial impact in the world. But as I confronted cancer this past year, it's been interesting to see how unimportant that impact is to me. I have concluded that the metric by which God will assess my life isn't dollars, but the individual people whose lives I've touched. Don't worry about the level of individual prominence you have achieved. Worry about the individuals that you have helped become better people. That's a Harvard Business School professor talking about the primacy of relationships. And that's what we're going to talk about it this quarter, um, is because it's something I talk about all the time with all of you. It's something we're all talking and thinking about all the time. And I want to say this. I love to talk about it. And if you have questions, um, my contact information is on there. I would love to meet with you. I would love to hang out with you. I would love to hear your questions. I would love to hear you disagree or be confused or say that I was really, really funny. Um, just however you want to enter into the conversation. Last thing I want to say by way of introduction, then we'll get started, is I'm going to say nothing original. If I quoted everything that I stole from other preachers and thinkers, all of tonight would be a bunch of footnotes. So this is my covering right here. John Stone, Tim Keller, Chad Scruggs, Brian Sorgenfry, Sammy Rhodes, Les Newsom. This is all from them. Begin quotes, okay? (laughs) Um, I'm going to read from a couple of of verses in Genesis and then a couple of verses in John, and then we're going to talk. So this is from the beginning, Genesis 1. Uh, This is at the end of the creation week. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to him, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is later in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And then from 1 John, a little bit different, but we're going to get to this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we talk about what it means to relate to one another, we need Your wisdom. Uh, We need Your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to open us up, and to teach us I pray that we would faithfully consider your word and that you would be with us. We need you to be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. So why relationships? Why are they such a big deal? Um, I kind of have this own taxonomy I've created having done this job now for my 12th year. Um, there are three levels of conversation. If, if you are like, hey, I want to get coffee with the guy and you email me or text me, um, we're going to kind of potentially touch one to two, possibly three levels of conversation. The first level of conversation is small talk, right? Small talk is basically anything you can learn about someone from Facebook. It's just the logistics of your life. It's important. We have to do it. What year are you? What's your major? Where are you from? What did you do last weekend? What do you plan to do next weekend? All that kind of stuff. Necessary part of relating to each other, even to good friends. We even have to do small talk. Um, but also, at some point, we all kind of feel like it gets tedious if a relationship never moves past the logistics of a person. Then the second level is what I call just intermediate talk. Intermediate talk is your plans and your philosophy. So it's kind of like what your dreams in life are, where you want to go, what you want to accomplish, but also kind of why you have those dreams. You have to look back and you tell some stories. This is uh, why I have these dreams and why I want to do these things. And it's not just your plans, but it's also your philosophies, how you think the world works, the manner in which you're going to kind of follow those dreams, what you think about people, what you think about work, those kind of things. And that's that's pretty cool conversation. It's what we think about things, it's our plans for life. But then there's the third level. Small talk, intermediate talk, and I call this deep talk. And if small talk is about your logistics, and intermediate talk is about your plans and your philosophy, deep talk is about who you are. And it's actually a hard place to get. Some people can do it well. Some of us actually maybe haven't done it at all in a long time. Maybe we don't even know how to do it, to talk about who we are. But here's how I know that we're beginning to get into a conversation that involves deep talk, is because when you begin to talk about who you are, you talk about your relationships. Talk about your parents. Talk about your friends. You talk about good things and bad things, the brokenness of relationships. This is, this is actually why when we talk to our therapists, the way our therapists help us come to understand ourselves is they get you to end up talking about your relationships. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie Into the Wild, you should. It's a great 
but tragic story. It's the story of Chris McCandless. Uh, it's a true story. He finished college. This is in the early 90s. He was disillusioned with the modern world, with his family, with his community, with the economy. So he decided to go live alone by himself in the Alaskan wilderness. And he journaled about his adventure. And he actually dies. Spoiler alert. I guess that was a little late. Um, (laughs) He dies alone in the wilderness at the end of the movie. He journaled throughout it. We have his journal today. And at the end of the movie, these are his final words. He's reading his journal, um, and what's shared with the audience is this final quote, happiness is only real when it's shared. So his decision was a tragic mistake. I'm saying these things to tell you, to convince you, I think you know this, that we are made for relationship, it's fundamental to being human, and our humanity erodes without connection. We are made for relationship, and that's actually the first doctrine that's established about mankind in Genesis. When God first talks about man, first time we come up as a character in the grand story, this is what God says. And and notice the grammar. It's very interesting. It's very unique. It doesn't show up like this elsewhere in Scripture. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. For future reference, when you read the Old Testament, the way Hebrew writers teach us is they repeat themselves. God refers to him, so the first thing God does uniquely is he refers to himself in the first person plural. And there's two prominent details from the text that we're supposed to pick up on the first time the Bible ever talks about humanity. And the first is this, God is a community in and of himself. The reason most scholars assume that he is talking about himself in the first person plural, which he doesn't do elsewhere in the Old Testament, but while he's creating man, he does, is that it's alluding to the Trinitarian nature of God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That he is a community in and of himself. So that's the first detail we learn. But then secondly, the very next fact that we learn from this short text is God made us like him. After his own image. The other repetition is this. After his own image. After his likeness. It means a lot of things that were made in his own image. There's far more we can talk about that. But the first thing that we learn is that we are relational beings. That we're made for connection. We are made to live in a web of relationships. And I read the passage from chapter 2 as well. In the garden, God examines the life of the first man. He concludes, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit or complementary to him. I'm not going to go into that language tonight. We'll talk about it later in the quarter. But I'll say this, when it says helper fit or complementary, it doesn't mean servant. It's not a positional statement. It means a partner of complementing strengths and weaknesses to co-labor with him. But the point I want to draw tonight is that it says it is not good for man to be alone. And God initially resolves that loneliness with marriage But marriage is not the only solution to being alone. And as Scripture unfolds, we're actually going to see over the course of the next couple of weeks that God has given us all sorts of relationships within which when they properly function, when our relationships are healthy, they're intended for providing us the full experience and expression of being human. Happiness is only real when it's shared. A couple of points of application or kind of some implications 
And the first point is this. This means you cannot figure out who you are by yourself. You cannot figure out what it means to be human, and you actually can't even know yourself by yourself. This is what one sociologist said, there are truths that we do not see when we adopt the language of radical individualism. We find ourselves not independently of other people and institutions, but actually through them. We never get to ourselves on our own. We discover who we are face-to-face and side-by-side with others in work and in love and in learning. You actually know yourself the least when you're alone. And people, when, whenever we kind of take on that language of wanting to find ourselves and thinking the solution is to be alone by either avoiding society altogether or simply avoiding being known and avoiding relational obligations, then you actually know yourself the least. For the five fundamental relationships in my life. I have four daughters and my wife Elizabeth. Before those relationships demanded a ton of things of me and came into my life, I thought I'm a pretty calm person. I thought I'm a really, really patient person. Uh, I thought I'm a really, really kind person. I thought I was a selfless person. And I thought I didn't like to touch people physically. When five people came into my life, 24-7, never to leave ever again, (laughs) I found out I'm a really, really angry person. Never knew it until relationships revealed it of me. I found out I'm a really, really selfish person. I found out I'm a really, really impatient person. Here's the cool thing. I found out I really, really love to snuggle too. So there's some perks, right? (laughs) But here's what happened. I was exposed. I actually finally learned who I was. I was living a delusion before that, and they forced me to confront myself, and actually, in a lot of ways, I couldn't grow until I knew myself. You can't know yourself and you can't grow. Until relationships come into your life, make demands of you, and expose you. And then all of a sudden you're figuring out and finding out who you are. Within a relationship, that's where you find out who you are. And there are beautiful things and there are nasty things. And to experience being human, it can only be done in relationships. Application point uh, one. You can't discover yourself and you can't grow by yourself if you're alone. Point number two. We'll be really practical. I don't do that much normally enough. I need to do it more. Some of you need to quit stuff. And when I say some of you, some means all, actually. <laughs> we th- you think you're unhappy to a large degree because you're not doing enough. Right? That, I, I spend time with you. You know this. You feel like you should be doing more. You should be accomplishing and achieving at a higher level. And you think you're unhappy because you're not. You're actually unhappy because you're doing too much for your resume. You're unhappy actually because you don't have real friends and you're masking that unhappiness and medicating it with various forms of commitments and work. We have social events in RF. We have specialty this weekend. We have small groups all throughout the week. Those things, they're not important in themselves, but the reason that we have them is to create avenues at Special D for you just to meet and celebrate people, to just form some initial connections, to do some small talk. The reason we have things like small groups, the reason we have things like tonight, is actually so you with someone else can talk about some deep things. 
And none of those things are going to give you deep friendship overnight, your deep connection overnight, but they're providing avenues for a beginning connection. And this is the sneaky truth that we're all burying under our full schedules and our anxieties and our extracurriculars. This is the sneaky truth we're all denying, but we know it's true. Loved and loving people are happier than high-achieving people. Loved and loving people are happier than high-achieving people. It's always been true. You're not going to be the exception. Some of us need to quit stuff. Remember what some means. Some of us, a lot of us, myself included, need to recognize the Christian life can't be lived alone. It is not you and your Bible hold up in your dorm room for the next four years. Paul's clear in Ephesians 4 that Christian maturity only happens in a community. Not usually, but only happens within a community. And we're, what happens is when we envision what I've got to do is read my Bible and make sure I don't misbehave in college and that's what it means to be a mature Christian, is we actually substitute an a, uh, easy form of spiritual, spiritual maturity. You know what's easy to do? It's easy to like try to read your Bible regularly and pray and feel good about that and try not to drink too much. That's an easy form of spirituality. That's not what God calls you to. He calls you to love God and love your neighbor. That's far more challenging. When we convince ourselves it's this little individualized sanctification plan that we're doing on our own, we're actually choosing the easy path. Real maturity, what God calls you to, is to love the people close to you with the love of Jesus. That's terrifying. One other point. One more application point. Then we'll get to the second half. Alone, that issue is not an issue of proximity. It's an issue of personal knowing. This is what I mean. Alone is not an issue of proximity. It's an issue of personal knowing. We've all experienced being alone in a crowd. Some of you, when we finish tonight, you're going to feel alone in this room. There's a lot of people near you in proximity, but you're going to feel alone. Alone is not about getting people around you. This is why study groups, parties, hall events, while having friendship-like qualities to them, can still leave you feeling like you don't have friends. Because sometimes we'll think, well, I'm around people socializing, so I'm not alone anymore. Alone is not resolved by having people around you. Alone is resolved or fixed when you're known. This is why the word for the deepest form of intimacy in the scripture is to know. This is why sex is sometimes called to know in the Bible, because that's the deepest form of physical intimacy. The reason that we might be around a bunch of social activity and still be alone is because we're still not known. In 12 years of campus ministry, I've seen y'all have friends, a number of students get overwhelmed in college and take time off. That happens. That's fine. Some of you, on a few extreme occasions, things have gotten very difficult, and some of us have been around situations where we've had a friend try to take their life. Right, And the assumption behind those is always there's just this intense amount of anxiety and stress from the demands of Stanford's culture. And that's far too simplistic. Because plenty of people carry heavy loads. And plenty of people carry heavier loads. But every single time that someone has left and every single time someone has attempted to take their own life, and I've been around those situations, the people around them never, have never said, 
I just, you know, I guess they were doing too much. No one's ever said that. The people around them, their first words, every single time in all 12 years of my experience, the first words are, I didn't know they were going through that. No one knew they were going through that. It's not the workload that gets us. It's the lack of connection. Resiliency actually doesn't come primarily through managing your workload. It actually comes from being known and loved. And all of us need to wrestle, everybody needs to wrestle with the fact that the main thing that's preventing us from meaningful connection in the whole range of relationships, the main thing that's preventing us from meaningful connection is that we all have shames, We have inadequacies, we have sins, we have fears, we have failures, we have weaknesses, we have habits, we have proclivities, we have desires, and we also have wounds deep in us that we have hidden from every relationship, and we've hidden it because we think if it's ever brought into the light of a relationship, there's no way we could be loved. And the loneliness and the fractures and the frustration of relationship is not due to a lack of technique. It's not because we don't know how to make friends. It's due to the fact that we don't think any relationship could handle the real us. Because the real us is crazy and dark and we're even confused by the real us. And so what we do is we relate to each other's PR campaign. Not the real us. So we're high-achieving but really dysfunctional. Because relationships are the stuff of life. So here's my question. If nothing else, take this question and wrestle with it. How much time are you spending on understanding wisdom and maturity in relationships relative to the time you're spending on your achievements? If relationships are the stuff of life... On your deathbed, you will contemplate the people you love and the people have loved you. Are you giving any attention to the wisdom and maturity and understanding in relationships, especially in ratio to how much time you're giving attention to your desire to achieve? How do we begin to move into healthy relationships? How do we make them whole? Relationships are the stuff of life. So what do we do now? And the Bible actually teaches us that relationships are like a house. In Ephesians 2, Paul actually says a community, the way God intended it, is like a house. And a house has a foundation or a cornerstone. That is, the thing that you set at the bottom that sets the direction and gives stability to the entire thing. And the fundamental first stone, if you get it wrong, just like a foundation, the house crumbles. But if you get it right, everything lines up and there's flourishing. And that's how relationships are. And a lot of times, we actually, you, you feel this to some degree. We all feel this to some degree. We think there's a key relationship that if we get in place in our life, kind of everything will be made right. It might be something with a parent. It might be something in romance. It might be something with friends. And we dream that if we get that relationship in place, all will be well. But a friend of mine recently told a story about how it took him years to finally understand why a high school breakup just devastated him for years. And he said it wasn't until years later someone said, human relationships can't bear the weight of your identity. Only God can. And he finally understood that he'd placed all of his hope in his girlfriend. 
our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, parents, friends, romance, employers, they're central to who we are. Our relationship with God alone, our vertical relationship, is the only thing that can bear the weight of our identity. And when we replace our relationship with Him for other relationship, everything gets off kilter. I talked about last quarter, so I'm not going to spend much on this point. If your fundamental relationship is off, all other relationships devolve into disorder and into chaos. If Jesus' love for you is not your fundamental identity, if you cannot think of yourself, the main thing that I am is loved by God, then crazy disorder breaks out in our other relationships. Because this is what we do. We start to demand that our friendship and that our parents and that our romance and that approval do for us what only God's love can do. And Paul actually says in Romans 1 that what sin is, is sin is when we center our life and center our loves on created things instead of the Creator, instead of God's love. That actually includes human relationships. This is what it looks like. This looks like it, this is when it feels like your worth is bound up in whether or not you have a significant other. When you actually doubt your own worth, Because people are into you, a guy or girl is into you, or isn't into you. When you're angry or resentful because people have good relationships, friends of yours, they have what we want. It looks like when we manipulate people, it looks like also when we allow ourselves to be exploited by others. When you need to be needed. It's also revealed when your relationship with God feels empty. In all of our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, we are all doing one of two things. You are all, we are all doing one of two things at all times. You are either doing ministry or you're manipulating. We are either giving or taking. You're either in your relationships and your friendships being a servant or you're being a consumer. You're either imagining, thinking about your friends and your loves, you're imagining who they could become and delighting in that, or you're imagining what they can do for me. Because you're either loving them or we're using them. And the reason that our relationships are broken, if you begin to process and look at your relationships and realize... I'm using people, not loving people. And what I called using, I I masked it and used the word love to try to convince myself it was great. The reason our relationships are unbroken, here's why, is because we come into our horizontal relationships unloved. And we come in unloved with a list of hopes and desires of what we can get from those relationships. Something like that is going on in the rush right now. Lonely people are coming in wondering if they'll be loved and looking at a community and saying, will they meet my hopes and desires? We'd come into relationships unloved. That's why there's so much disorder. Instead of coming into our relationships loved. Because if you come into a relationship loved, then you have a lot to give. Unloved people use. That's what they do. All you can think about is what they can do for you and how they disappoint you. Loved people love. They give. They seek the well-being of others. Unloved people live in fear. 
We're always afraid of breaching the behavioral rules of relationship. Always afraid of being truly known. Loved people are free. Free from the tyranny of our secrets. Because our secrets have actually been brought into the light, and we found that not only were we not rejected, but we were received. That's John's point when he says there's no fear in love. He's saying if you're truly loved, if you understand the love of Jesus, there's no more fear. When you're truly loved, fear disappears because fear has to do with punishment. We're punishing each other in relationships and being punished in relationships all the time. But if you know the love of Jesus, there's no fear. Because you don't ever wonder if you've met the expectations of that relationship. Whoever fears hasn't been transformed by love yet. This is 1 John. We love... We have the capacity to love each other because He first loved us. And you can only ever experience His love at the cross. Because the cross is where Jesus says, I know the deep darkness in you. And I die for it. I carry away your shame. I carry away your addictions. I carry away your secret sins and your misdeeds dark... Everything in us, about us, that we fear makes us unlovable. All of those things that we've hidden from others and that we're even trying to hide from ourselves, Jesus knows those things. And His knowing is not simply awareness. His knowing is actually a suffering knowing. If your parents pay your credit card, they're not simply aware of the debt. They have experienced your debt. Right? Jesus paying our sins on the cross means He knows the tragedy of our darkness and our sin even more than we do. Jesus loves flawed people. In every other relationship, we are constantly wondering how many flaws can be exposed before this relationship breaks. With Jesus, the relationship actually reaches its heights of security and its heights of joy when our flaws are exposed and He says, I took them to the cross because I love you. And what that means actually for some of us, the barrier to joy is that we are too afraid to say, I am flawed deeply. Whether it's the external misbehaving or the more dangerous flaws that are internal like pride and vanity. We don't clean ourselves up and say, Jesus, can you love me? We come to Him in our mess, and our flaws and all, and He says, I'm full of mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And He loves you. And He knows the worst. Because God looks on the heart. And we're good at masking things. We can hide a lot from each other, but God looks on the heart He knows the worst things even more than we know ourselves. He knows you and He loves you. When you find your hope and your identity and your love, that makes you a full person. Who instead of relating to everyone parasitically, to the people in your life parasitically, leaving you with a trail of frustration and confusion and disappointment and broken relationships, instead you actually become a vessel of grace. Because you've experienced in Jesus' love a grace that the world doesn't understand. (coughs) Um... I've seen this show close with a picture uh, on BBC for a while and I thought I could never be interested in it because it's called Call the Midwife. Have you all seen this on Netflix? And you're like, what is that? Why is this woman on a bike? Um, you know what I'm talking about on Netflix? 
Go watch episode three of this. You will find rest in Jesus, okay? Here's what happens. So the story, the, the show is set in 1950s London, and it's about these Catholic nuns who are midwives, and it's just the drama of their life. This is what happens in this episode I watched the other day. Uh, a woman, Miss Lawson, goes into labor. Miss <coughs> Lawson, everybody get... Everybody get connected to the character of Miss Lawson. Carolyn's already very connected. All right, all right. We're having a liter- literary experience right here. All right. Uh, she goes into labor, and the baby's heartbeat begins to fade and begin to have complications. And the midwives are trying to figure out the situation, and what is happening is Mrs. Lawson is refusing to push. And they're like, we have to deliver this baby. You can't keep this baby in. She says, I'm not ready. I can't have this baby. She's screaming at the top of her lungs. And she says, I'm afraid. And she says, you don't understand. I'm scared. And the midwives ask her why. And she says this, I'm scared it's going to be black. And she finally pushes, and a black little baby boy is born to this white woman. And she tells the nurse, she starts weeping, and she says, it took me so long to find my husband, Ted. And now I'm going to lose him. And she resigns herself to the collapse of their marriage. And she says, I better, we better get it over with. And they go and get the husband. And he comes in, and she's holding this white woman, this white husband. She's holding this black baby boy. And the dad, his breath, he just loses his breath. He says, a boy. You don't know what this means to me. And then, he see, and then he says, can I hold the baby? And this is what he says. He says, I don't reckon to know much about babies, but I can see this is the most beautiful baby in the world. What should we call him? And she says, you choose. And he says, we'll call him Edward, a good family name. After me, he'll be my son, Ted. When we hide our shame, we can never experience being loved. And we will hurt, and we will manipulate, and we will use, and we will deceive, and we will shame others into liking liking the fake version of us. And we do this because we don't think anyone could love us in our shame. Will you offer your shame to Jesus? He does not long to punish you for it. He longs to cover it and carry it away for you. This kind of love is available in no other relationship, and it has the power to transform you in ways that you can't imagine, and it will break out healing in every other relationship in your life. That's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. Let's pray.